This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Some big issues of major public interest have come to light down the years because employees tipped off reporters about dodgy things they saw at work. But blowing the whistle can still be career-ending for those brave enough to do what they think is right. So why don't whistleblowers who go to the media get more protection from our law? I also talked to the editor and co-founder of the online news service Business Desk, which is pledging to follow the money, and now wants some of yours as a subscriber. But first, we look at how the media responded to the breaking news of the first case of the new coronavirus on our soil. Please, if you are feeling anxious this morning, just try and maintain a little bit of perspective. Channel your energy into prudence. Wash your hands thoroughly. Cough into your elbow. And don't ever tease your mum for having a few emergency supplies on standby. Jack Tame. Soothing words there for us all from Jack Tame on his Saturday morning show on News Talk ZB yesterday. And there he mentioned his mum because Jack Tame and others had teased her about prepping for the end of the world in the past. But Jack Tame told his listeners they were the ones looking daft when the Christchurch quakes hit. But this morning, as supermarkets are apparently overwhelmed by people stressed out about COVID-19, a.k.a. coronavirus, and this morning, as many of us feel really stressed out about a looming threat we can't see, I think it's a really good opportunity for us all to strike a balance between prudence and perspective. But others at the same radio station and in the same building producing ZB's sister paper, The Herald, for that same day, didn't quite take all that to heart, as we'll hear. Moments before Jack Tame's call for calm, the ZB traffic update said this. Uh, well, we, uh, well, you heard on the news there, there are some delays around the supermarkets at the moment as people line up to go in. And the ZB news at the top of the hour began this way. There are queues out the doors of supermarkets as people stock up on supplies following New Zealand's first confirmed case of coronavirus. Alexia Russell had gone to Pack and Save Waido Park to get food for her son's 21st and feels like she's in a zombie apocalypse. So you've got people shopping in pairs, one just sitting in the queue and the other racing around getting things and dumping them back in the trolley. It's just, I've never seen anything like it. It's completely nuts. Now, Alexia Russell is not just a random Saturday shopper. She's also the producer of the daily news podcast, The Detail, for RNZ and newsroom.co.nz. And just two days earlier, an entire edition of that was devoted to how misinformation about coronavirus could spread panic. Meanwhile, one hour later, over on RNZ National, Kim Hill was telling her listeners this. And I hear this panic buying in Auckland. Mind you, if I'd woken up to the New Zealand Herald screaming front page this morning, I might have indulged in some panic buying myself. And the front page of the Weekend Herald on sale in Auckland yesterday was indeed startling. Under the banner headline, Pandemonium, First NZ Coronavirus Case, It was a full-length photo of a man in protective gear washing down an underground train. But that wasn't taken at Britomart Station in Auckland. It was taken in Tehran, capital of Iran, and the point of origin of the New Zealand citizen who'd just come back from there and tested positive in Auckland on Friday afternoon. There was also a smaller photo at the bottom of the Weekend Herald front page showing empty shelves at an unnamed Auckland pack-and-save, along with a caption containing the overcooked statement, shelves across Auckland were being cleaned out. 
And it was that apparent panic buying, triggered by Friday's breaking news, that triggered the Weekend Herald's pandemonium headline. The story below the headline said panicked shoppers had descended on supermarkets across Auckland, stocking up for what one had labelled the apocalypse. There was no mention of zombies there, though. Now, people panic buying like this in several locations is a story for the Herald for sure, but how bad was this really? Well, the Herald front page quoted one resident as saying he entered his local pack-and-save at night and noticed it was, quote, weird from the outset because it was hard to find a park. Another said, we've been doing our groceries on Friday evenings for the past four years and never seen anything this bad. While another shopper told the Herald it was worse than Christmas Eve in the aisles. But the Christmas crush at Countdown isn't usually front page news. Inside, the business section of the Weekend Herald led with a sober and sombre assessment of what coronavirus might do to the economy here in the coming months. But that was topped off with the banner headline, World War V, and a huge picture of a health worker in a gown and face mask. But that picture wasn't taken here, but in Turin in Italy. Now, interestingly, that pandemonium headline didn't appear on the Weekend Herald editions on sale outside of Auckland, and the story didn't feature at all on the front pages of the weekend papers in the Herald stable around the North Island. For example, Hawke's Bay Today's weekend edition zeroed in instead on another case of a stricken individual in hospital. This was the Flaxmere four-year-old with brain damage who's in Starship Hospital after the assault on him last month, for which no one has yet been charged. And further south, the Otago Daily Times, which shares copy with the New Zealand Herald, did lead on what it called the first case of the virus in New Zealand. But queues and car parks and crushes in Auckland shops weren't part of the picture. The health authorities here have been planning for a case of COVID-19 on our soil, and the media too were ready with what-you-need-to-know type explainers, which they rolled out online when the news broke on Friday. And radio stations had public health experts on hand to go on air, like Otago University Professor of Public Health Michael Baker, who was on News Talk ZB on Friday afternoon, saying this. It's absolutely business as usual in New Zealand. Um, just go out and enjoy yourself, do your usual things. We're, we're still a, a long way off from uh, what we call social distancing measures, which happen at the point where we recognise we've got widespread community transmission. But business as usual doesn't mean nothing to worry about, which was very much the message on this promo that ZB was running for its morning show host Kerry McIver just minutes before the news broke. News Talk ZB, the names, the news and you. Coronavirus does not concern me any more than any other flu does. You know, if you catch the flu, any type of strain, it can be nasty. I would happily travel to London tomorrow. Later that same night on News Talk ZB, nighttime host Marcus Lush was frustrated by those sorts of claims in the media. I've always thought coronavirus was very serious. There's a lot of people in the media that say it's it's no more serious than the flu, which shows a complete lack of understanding of how disease worked or the fatalities, you know. And Marcus Lush was also frustrated by callers quoting misinformation back to him from the internet and some who claim to know a lot more about the case currently in the headlines. I'm a travel agent in New Zealand and I think that, you know, getting on the plane, I think, you know, they, they probably knew that they were sick already. You know, they have put two to 300 people potentially at risk. All I'm saying is I think that, you know, he probably knew he was unwell before getting on the plane. He probably, I don't know if I should say fair enough, but probably didn't want to have medical treatment there. He probably just wanted to get back to New Zealand, as we probably all would. But by doing that, he has therefore put, you know, two to 300 people at risk. I have seen no allegation that he was unwell 
before he got on that plane or when he was on that plane. But I'll look. Yeah. I'll, I'll check. I will check up and see if I can find some more information about that, Leanne. A lot of assumptions there from that caller to News Talk ZB last Friday night. On Saturday morning on RNZ National, Kim Hill addressed questions like the communicability of the new coronavirus relative to better-known strains of flu, with Dr Chris Smith, a consultant virologist from Cambridge University in the UK, who really did know what he was talking about. Because in the year when flu claims about 650,000 lives a year, that equates to a mortality rate of the flu of about 0.05%, or as much in a bad year as 0.1%. So in other words, one in every thousand people who get it might die. With this new infection, based on the numbers we have so far, so one must interpret them with caution, the numbers being reported for the mortality rate range from between about 0.5% to up to 5%. Now I think the 5% is probably a bit much, and it's probably closer to 1% or half a percent. That's still about 10 times higher than the flu. So it's 10 times more lethal if you catch it than the flu is each year. And Dr Smith also gave Kim Hill and her listeners news that prospective panic buyers heading to the shops could really use. You can't beat soap and water. You cannot beat soap and water. It's the best. I'm glad you said that because people are panic buying hand sanitizer here. Yeah, go and buy a bar of soap. If you've got access to soap and water, A, it smells nice and it won't make your sandwiches taste horrible. That's why I prefer it in the hospital when I'm doing my rounds. Um, But it is really good. And in studies where people have looked at, say, recovery of various bacteria and viruses from people's skin, soap and water outperformed all of those hand sanitizers. Dr Smith's main message for all of us was nothing's changed after the first case here on our soil. Keep calm and carry on. Take basic precautions like observing basic hygiene and checking your basic supplies. And he could have added, stick with trusted sources of news and information, but take panicky headlines like pandemonium and World War V with a pinch of salt. For decades, there have been whispers and innuendo in the back lots of Hollywood about producer Harvey Weinstein and how he treats women behind closed doors. Today, in the New York criminal courts, his crimes were declared beyond reasonable doubt. And I was jumping for joy, and I started to cry, and it just gave me life again. That was Australia's ABC there, reporting the story that led the bulletins here and all over the world on Tuesday, even ahead of coronavirus fears sending stock markets around the world into a downward spiral. The ABC's report featured Italian model and Harvey Weinstein victim Ambra Gutierrez, who wore a wire to gather evidence against him. Outside the court today, she told ABC she feels vindicated and energised to continue her fight for the worldwide movement known as Me Too. You played such an important role in starting this whole movement. How do you feel now at the end of this chapter? Uh, It's not an end. Uh, There is so much work to do. It's more like this is an example for many to follow. And as Umbra Gutierrez said there, this week's trial was just the tip of an international iceberg. Rebecca Barry of the UK's ITV put it like this in her report on Tuesday. This case became symbolic about far more than just one man's guilt or innocence. The allegations against the Hollywood producer sparked the Me Too movement against sexual harassment and abuse. And today's verdict will be seen as a watershed moment.
And that moment, and the Me Too movement, wouldn't have happened without women who blew the whistle on Weinstein. And the journalists who told their stories in the media also helped to create an environment whereby others could speak out all around the world. Here, it was serious sexual misconduct at the law firm Russell McVeigh, which was also seriously mishandled, which gave the Me Too movement momentum once it has been exposed by newsroom.co.nz. And that prompted stuff to open up a Me Too media campaign led by reporter Alison Moore, who urged other women to blow the whistle. But at this time, not all others were supportive in the media. The campaign was labelled a witch hunt by some and a knee-jerk reaction to the Harvey Weinstein headlines by others. Next week, it'll be two years since that campaign was launched. We'll look at what it achieved and what it didn't. But on Tuesday, Alison Moore told Jesse Mulligan on RNZ National that hundreds of people had responded to the Stuff campaign, though it didn't always end well for them. Everybody thinks that you're doing the right thing if you report sexual harassment in your workplace, um, and that a lot of people very bravely do. At the moment they report, they feel a sense of relief as if things are going to change and they will get, there'll be a process and they, get, they will get justice. And the reality is that that is the moment where it all starts to go badly wrong. Oh, man. Now, one of the reasons for that is the damage that blowing the whistle can do to the career of anyone brave enough to speak up. And that holds true for all kinds of wrongdoing at work. Well, as it happens, our whistleblowing law, the Protected Disclosures Act, is currently under review here. The act is supposed to protect an employee who discloses serious wrongdoing from criminal or civil prosecution in certain circumstances, and in theory, also from retaliation from their employer. But employees must follow the appropriate channels for making a protected disclosure, and anyone caught disclosing or leaking information to the media is not protected, even if disclosure is in the public interest. Back in 2015, for example, security guard Linda Moate, with the backing of her union, told the Dominion Post newspaper her employer had encouraged staff to cheat in their training. And there was nothing she, or the union, or the Employment Relations Authority, or the newspaper could do about her subsequent sacking. Now that case, and others like it, prompted the current government to review the law. And a major change is allowing people to report serious wrongdoing directly to an appropriate external authority rather than having to raise their concerns first with the agency that they work for. But the media will not be one of those appropriate external authorities under the proposed changes to the law. The initial discussion document said extending protections to people who report to the media could help expose serious threats to the public interest But it's complicated. People could simply get it wrong, or worse, deliberately make a false claim which could cause unfair reputational damage to the people involved in the public domain. Now, sadly, the media weren't consulted before that discussion document was prepared, and in the only media submission before the deadline, TVNZ pointed out that the media don't operate on a no-smoke-without-fire basis. We can categorically state that this would never happen in our newsroom, said TVNZ's general counsel, Brent McAnulty, and he cited some examples of TVNZ reporting wrongdoing, which was in the public interest. The melamine milk contamination, where Fonterra managers knew about it but did not announce a public recall to stop parents feeding it to their babies. Pike River, where an employee complained about safety issues but management shut them down. The reports of inappropriate behaviour by a coach at Cycling New Zealand, which was not acted upon until One News revealed that concerns had previously been raised internally by both athletes and staff.
And if reporting does cause unfair reputational damage to a third party, TVNZ's Brent McAnulty pointed out it can then sue the broadcaster for defamation and cause serious financial and reputational damage to the media outlet in question. Now, one of few journalists to follow this review of the law is Tom Polistreka of the Dominion Post. Back in 2018, he criticised the suggested reforms to whistleblower laws as feeble. I'm in awe of the bravery of people who have contacted me with concerns about their workplaces or practices in their industries over the years. I'm sometimes shocked by how bad things can get before problems are aired. At a time when honesty and ethics are in retreat around the world, how about we choose to live in an open society 24 hours a day? In December, a report into whistleblowing in Australia and New Zealand addressed what ought to be best practice for serving the public interest. Clean as a Whistle is a follow-up to what's been described as one of the world's largest studies into this and the impact of organisations' whistleblowing policies. One of its authors is Victoria University of Wellington professor Michael McCauley. I think there's a lot of positives in the potential reforms. I think there's a great deal of positives in the idea of the one-stop shop, in the strengthening of the wording, uh, and particularly in terms of the monitoring uh, of whistleblower complaints. I think they're all really, really good. In the specific case of media disclosures, I personally would have liked to have seen that strengthened, uh, and that's something that we argued for in there. It's something that other jurisdictions are beginning to do now and recognise the importance. But overall, in the scheme of things, I'd still like to stress that I do see the, uh, the new reforms as a positive thing. The initial discussion document for this actually highlighted the danger of media reporting claims they thought might be wrong or misleading. Uh, Business New Zealand then put in a a submission which kind of echoed that, saying, you know, serious damage could happen to to people, to businesses, um, and that they believed if there was serious misconduct going on, it would come to light anyway, you know, without someone necessarily going to the media because they felt protected. Do you think they're right about that? Potentially they are, but potentially there's absolutely no problem in other people going to the media. The the thing with going to the media is you can do it, I think, legitimately if it's your last line of defence. And people do. I think people just going straight to the media to complain about anything would be difficult. But I think that's hypothetical. Uh, I don't particularly necessarily agree that there'd be an enormous amount of vexatious complaints. And I don't think that the media would be particularly interested in those kind of complaints anyway. Because, I mean, look, let's be honest. When, the high, when misconduct does come out highlighted uh, in the media, whatever it might be, whether it's really serious corruption and bribery issues or you know, slightly more HRE issues such as bullying, it's all bad for reputation anyway. Mm. The, the thing that's really difficult for organisations, both private businesses and public organisations, is when they're not perceived to be doing anything about things that are self-evidently there. So in other countries, for example in Australia, are there protections that extend to whistleblowers who do go to the media? Yes, uh, there was changes to the Australian Corporations Act just last year that are now in effect. I think they came into effect July or August 2019. And they do protect people to be able to go to to journalists under a particular set of circumstances. They already need to have been uh, to a regulator or to have informed the the organisation that they've made the complaint or they've blown the whistle on it. They have to wait uh, 90 days for that to have gone nowhere. They have to have a reasonable grounds to believe that it's not going anywhere, that that their complaint isn't being dealt with properly, and also that it's definitely in the public interest. And they also have to uh, offer the agency or organisation written notification that they're going to go to the media. Uh, And if those things are in place, then it's permitted and people are protected. And again, I I think they're the kind of fairly sensible bulwarks that you can put into place to protect people. No one's asking for everyone to have a licence just to go running and making any old complaint. That's obviously ludicrous. 
Mm. Well, the, the Cleaners Whistle Report has a section on media freedom, which refers to um, uh, the serious doubt about the viability of using that channel in the mind of the whistleblower or a chilling effect on the ability of the media to play its own part. That doubt would provide compelling reasons for not only reforming and clarifying the laws for whistleblowing, but uh, reinforcing it with le- legislative protection for journalists' use of whistleblowing for public interest purposes. Is that the same thing as a public interest test? To, a, to an extent it is. I mean, I think we've got to be a little bit careful about using slightly emotive words like the chilling effect. But I think when we're talking about the New Zealand case, whether or not a lack of new reforms is going to have a chilling effect, frankly, I don't accept that. I don't think that's true. However, when we're talking about public trust more generally, it's always going to be uh, in the interest to promote greater levels of trust to be able to seem to be proactive about things. The Clean as a Whistle report also referred to, I think mainly with regard to Australia, but in the cases they looked at, actually very few found their way to the media. Uh, most most were reported to the internal agencies, yeah. and they're talking about maybe 1% or 2% that went to the, to, to the media. So uh, in that sense, perhaps the lawmakers looking at that and thinking, well, on the balance of where these complaints end up, perhaps the media is not really a priority for reform of the Protected Disclosures Act? No, it, it's all about escalation, and that's why I think the Australian legislation, and, and I must confess uh, recent EU legislation as well, there's just, I think, only last year, the year before, a new EU directive about protections for people who want to go to the media as well. They're, they're there as kind of a, a last resort, really. They're very important to, be, to, to have them, I think, because people sometimes need a last resort, don't they? But the vast majority of cases should never reach that, and I, I don't ever think that they would, to be honest. And are you a bit disappointed that only one media outlet uh, which is TVNZ, made a submission, made the point that, look, the media don't just put people's claims out there in order to get attention or run a story. They investigate them thoroughly and, and wouldn't do so, wouldn't air them if they weren't fairly convinced that they were they were correct and worth reporting. Um, so sad that there's only one media outlet that made that case? I, I'm not wearing a white wig, Colin, and I'm not judging anybody. OK. Uh, no, I look, it, it, it's up to organisations to respond accordingly. Why didn't Radio New Zealand put something in out of interest? Uh, Do good, you have any idea? Good, good question. Uh, not no, above my pay grade, maybe. But, you know, we, we don't... <laughs> part of the problem here is that we don't seem to have a strong cross... You know, the mutual interests of the media are not um, represented there. Perhaps the media's missing a trick if they don't put up a united front on these things. Mm. Well, perhaps... We've seen this week whistleblowing by brave women has resulted eventually in the conviction of Harvey Weinstein overseas, but it took years to mm. lift the lid on his crimes. Is this a case, do you think, that will perhaps go down in, in history as something that shows the power of whistleblowing, but also its limits because it took so long? I sincerely hope it does, Colin. It is just how many of them spoke out and how many of them were silenced. And we saw the same thing with the Jimmy Savile case over the years in the UK where it wasn't just a case that there was an evil man who was brilliant at manipulating people. We saw hundreds, and I mean literally hundreds of people, come forward over decades, and they were blocked at every turn. They were blocked sometimes through ignorance. They were blocked sometimes through coercion. They were blocked sometimes through uh, being bought off. But whatever it was, they were silenced. And I, I really, truly hope that there's a big investigation and a full understanding of the industrial scale lengths to which people, victims and survivors, uh, were basically told to be quiet and to ignore it, to be belittled and everything else. Yeah, I worked at the BBC in the UK from the sort of mid-90s and early 2000s. Years later, back here working for RNZ, I got a letter from them saying, now, did you see anything or encounter this man, Savile? Is there anything you want to report? They must have written to tens of thousands of their yeah. current and former employees. And I got that letter thinking... 
Well, this is about 15 years too late, isn't it? Well, if, if you look at Savile, hundreds of people who came forward, but they didn't go to one particular agency. They went to different police forces who don't speak to each other, obviously, all the time in, in across England and Wales, because there's, I think, 42 different regional police forces. Or they went to the care homes, or they went to the hospitals, or they went to Broadmoor, or they went to the BBC, or they went to wherever these kind of incidents were taking place. And those never got connected up. So that hiding in plain sight the thing overlaying. Yeah. But then, of course, there's got to be some kind of conspiratorial view as well behind that because people did know. I mean, what's the, what's the big thing that we've heard about Weinstein and we've heard about Savile? Oh, yeah, well, we knew. Bill Cosby, we all knew. Everyone knew. Well, if you knew, why wasn't something done? Yeah, well, the fear of damaging careers, exactly. I guess, and, and, uh, and legal comeback. And look, here in New Zealand, of course, uh, Me Too movement got momentum Again, partly from the media. For example, uh, the newsroom.co.nz, fairly bold reporting there of what was happening at the Russell McVeigh law firm, some serious misconduct there, not well handled. Uh, And then wider legal profession too, investigations into that. Is that a good case study here in New Zealand of the power of whistleblowing allied to the media's input? It is, and it's also a good case study of... The, the sadness behind organisational failures, uh, that's, that's the other thing. Let's not forget again that these things weren't just going straight to the media. They didn't just go straight to reporters or anything like that. There was processes followed and those processes unfortunately didn't work. Hopefully, of course, now they'll be a lot more robust. That, that case study is redolent of both those things, both of the kind of the proactive version of the media and also, sadly, the reactive version of a lot of organisations. That's Michael McCauley, Professor of Public Administration at the School of Government at Victoria University in Wellington. Right now it's company reporting season and lately how media companies have been posting their annual results and for those listed on the NZX also explaining their performance and signposting their plans to investors. And last Tuesday the chief executive of the New Zealand Herald's owner NZME confirmed that it still wants to take over its major rival in newspapers and online news, a media mega merger that was first proposed in 2017. But that's in spite of the fact that the Commerce Commission and the courts have said no to a merger since then. And pursuing this as a corporate priority for Chief Executive Michael Boggs, or Boggsy to his friends, like Heather Duplessy-Allen, the drive-time host on NZME's talk network, News Talk ZB. Boggsy, hello. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, why do you think you are, or NZME, is the right owner for Stuff? Well, fundamentally, we know that Stuff's owner, Nine, wants to sell them, uh, and that's been for some time We have an absolute commitment um, to New Zealand around journalism. It's a really important part of what we produce, and it's journalism and broadcasting, just like you're doing here. And so that's not something we want to go to waste, that stuff business. But Michael Boggs' main task last Tuesday, though, was to reveal NZME's latest annual results. Another decline in revenue from newspapers, alongside modest upturns in digital and online advertising, and a welcome upswing in revenue from its many radio stations. Michael Boggs on Tuesday also revealed that 21,000 people were now paying for the Herald's premium content through a digital subscription, and those were launched in April last year, when the New Zealand Herald stopped making all its news and journalism available for free online. And Michael Boggs told investors in a special briefing online it was not all about the money. New Zealand Herald Premium has proven that New Zealanders will pay for high-quality content. We take to heart in the fact that over 35% of our premium subscribers are on annual subscriptions. 
But NZME's Michael Boggs isn't the only media boss these days hoping that more New Zealanders are now willing to pay for their journalism online. If you've been in or around Auckland lately, you might have seen a Rolls-Royce towing a big billboard-laden trailer with the words, follow the money on it in huge letters. Well, the business and economics news service Business Desk was certainly interested. It posted several photos of the cryptic car without explanation. But it turns out that was all a stunt executed by an ad agency on Business Desk's behalf. Because in Auckland on Wednesday, it held a do to let people know that instead of just selling business news and commentary to the rest of the media, Business Desk is now trying to turn individuals in business into customers. Now it's an online-based news service seeking subscribers who are willing to part with just under $250 a year each for 10 to 20 original stories a day. So this week I asked Business Desk founder Patrick Smelly what can Business Desk offer that others online can't to digital subscribers. Well, Business Desk has been going for about 12 years. We got going in 2008. For the first probably eight or nine years of our existence, that wire service uh, model worked quite well for us. Uh, but as time went on, the number of potential customers in New Zealand just started to fall away. Yahoo uh, used to take our whole feed. Uh, when AAP was in New Zealand, they ran a newswire for New Zealand. We supplied all of their business news for that. That was an unprofitable venture which lasted six years. When they stopped, we stopped. Either we uh, closed down or try uh, to adapt to the way that the media market is, is uh, changing. The one thing about business and economic news, particularly if you overlay it with a bit of political economy, there is a readership for that which is hungry for good uh, reliable stuff which also has the capacity to pay for it. Mm. So some of it has been down the years nuts and bolts sort of business finance yeah. type reporting and corporate stuff but also people would have read your own commentaries even long pieces in the listener authored by you for example. Now that you're trying to get the money directly from the customers how is this going to change the journalism? We used to talk about incoming which was the incoming news that we had to deal with as it hit our inboxes. We've got to change that completely. We need to be setting the news agenda much more, being much more judicious about what we choose to cover. And when we do cover, as we will continue to do, NZX-listed news, what the Reserve Bank's doing, budgets and so forth, it's about taking a much more judicious approach to what we decide to cover and how we decide to cover it. So I've sort of been thinking a bit lately uh, that... uh, Ice cream ad, no more boring bits. (laughs) A journal of record is one thing. Filling in the gaps for other publishers doing interesting stuff is another thing. We need to be now that publisher doing the interesting stuff. There are other outfits, of course, in this field of business journalism. So the news publishers, the Herald and, and stuff... They've both got substantial business teams. I mean, RNZ has one too. The NBR as a publication has existed for quite some time covering that territory. We have interest.co.nz online as well. What is it that Business Desk would offer to these paying customers that the others either don't or or can't? I think it would be arrogant to suggest that uh, the others don't or can't do the the sorts of things that we also aspire to do. I think what we would want to be doing those is to make ourselves essential. We think less about the competition and more about what is it that we would... Uh, aspire to be as a news service, which would mean that people who want to know what's going on in the New Zealand economy and political economy can't do without us. The key thing for us is uh, we will always bring on new journalists, but we have a very experienced team to bring insight and uh, breaking news. As a, for instance, you have, I think, Gavin Evans yes. uh, as a specialist in energy. Uh, so I've been reading his stuff about the TY Point dispute. Um, yeah. And uh, is that an example of where you've got 
one journalist with a the, real specialism in an important deep, field. Deep understanding of, of energy resources, climate change policy. Uh, Jenny Ruth, you know, 2018 New Zealand Shareholders Association Business Journalist of the Year, one of the toughest nuts in the business, basically, you know, really knows her stuff. You know, I've been around forever. <laughs> Paul Macbeth, uh, 10 years under his belt with us, or 12 years now under his belt with us, uh, just... The Herald this week, or, or NZME, its owner, said that 21,000 people are now paying for digital subscriptions to uh, its its uh, premium offering online. Is that an encouraging number for you, or are you thinking, oh, well, they've harnessed that, the people who are likely to pay? That's my customers. <clears throat> uh, I'm, I'm, I regard that as encouraging. I mean, that basically, it's quite clear that the news industry will fall into two camps. There'll be the stuff that's free, and there'll be the stuff that people pay for. And the stuff that people pay for will tend to be, I suspect, for a start at least, will be, tend to be niche, uh, standing or falling on its capacity to really inform the target market in a way which uh, general media tends not to be able to do. But, but the Herald's offering is broader than just business, and Much it's more. cheaper than yours. You've also got the National Business Review, which has been around for a long time. That's now heavily into this online space, trying to move people away from its, its print I'm very edition. very much a pioneer in that space, yeah. Yeah. Is this town big enough for the both of you, trying to get subscribers for an online product? I worry about what we're doing rather than what other people are doing. Put it this way, I do hope that there's room for both of us because, you know, some great journalists at NBR. What have we got? Strongly growing economy, a fast-growing population, uh, and a whole generation of people who either can't afford or struggle to afford a house but have have large and growing KiwiSaver balances who are taking a significantly greater interest um, at a younger age in what investment markets are doing. So I think that the, the whole pool of people interested in at least in investment markets, is growing substantially. And I, you know, I see that amongst my own adult children, just a, a, a desire to get better information. And I, I think, so I think the market is growing, so I don't, I don't worry about that too much. Maybe the issue that, that we'll all face, um, those of us seeking subscription income, is, is subscription fatigue. Because as people uh, accept that paying for the good stuff is is inevitable. Mm-hmm. They'll then have to decide which of the good stuff, and it's not just in news. You know, you're paying. You might be paying for, you know, what do I pay for? The Financial Times, New York Times, because and uh, used to get the Economist. Just stopped doing that; it's too expensive. Um, and uh, I also pay for Netflix. I pay for Spotify. Pay for Lightbox. Uh, you know, all these different forms of media that that uh, take a little bit of chunk of change each month so that again is the challenge for us we need to be priced right that people will keep us in their consideration set and we have to then deliver what makes them want to keep paying that that was patrick smelly editor and co-founder of business desk an online business news outlet that's now a subscription service selling individual and company subscriptions well that's all we have for you from the media watch team for this week we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10:30 next wednesday night talking to karen hay on the lately show with midweek media watch and then back again for media watch at the same time next weekend here on rnz national